dangerously close. My guest today is Jordan S. Carroll. Jordan is a writer and educator who received his PhD in English from the University of California, Davis. His first book, Reading the Obscene, Transgressive Editors and the Class Politics of U.S. Literature, won the Modern Language Association's Prize for Independent Scholars. He is currently working on another book titled Speculative Whiteness, Race, Science Fiction, and the Alt-Right which is forthcoming from the University of Minnesota Press Forerunner series. Speculative whiteness examines the long history of connections between science fiction and white nationalism to show that fascists have often interpretive, sorry, interpreted speculative narratives to argue that only white men have the capacity to imagine the future. His other work has appeared in venues including American Literature, Post 45, The Nation, Polygon, and the Los Angeles Review of Books. What's up, Jordan? How's it going? Well, fantastic, man. I will mostly fantastic, but I will have to say this. Say it ain't so, man. Say <laughs> so Dune. This is how this is you know why I first started talking to you. You wrote an article about Dune and <laughs> the reaction to uh the the new the newer film uh I can't pronounce. I don't know how to pronounce his name. Is it Villanueva? Is that how you say his name? Um, I think it's Villanueva, but I could be wrong. I'm bad Villeneuve. with pronunciations. So, yeah. So, so De- De- Dennis Villanueva made a new Dune movie. I loved it, uh, mm-hmm. but I also I loved the books. I might be willing to say that Dune is probably maybe possibly my favorite sci-fi uh, book series that I've ever read. I read. All six of the ones while Frank Herbert was alive, and then I continued to read the ones that were written by his best friend and son (laughs) after his death. So that's how much I liked it. So when I read your article and you were like, the, you know, neo-Nazis and the alt-right have co-opted this book and they've made it one of their texts, it broke my heart. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I guess that's a thing, huh? Yeah, I mean, it's 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 difficult because so much of this is stuff that we're invested in and seeing fascists engage with it uh, can be pretty disheartening. Um, but yeah, fascists really love Dune. They're obsessed with it. This is an ongoing project that they have to, to transform Dune and a lot of science fiction into fascist propaganda. And as we can probably talk about today, um, these aren't always great readings of Frank Herbert's Dune or any other kinds of science fiction, but they have turned it into a sort of recruiting tool and a way of mainstreaming their ideas by doing these often lengthy, close readings of science fiction texts. So I guess um, we will get a little bit more into Dune later because, like I said, I am... I. I I'm damn near a super fan. Uh, I think I think Frank Herbert's a, an, an amazing author and very creative. And I just, to me, I just, I mean, I I, th- I can see the problematic stuff in the book, but I never mm-hmm. thought that it would be a white supremacist text. That I hate that about it. But um, I guess you know, stepping back a little bit further and kind of to a, a wider scope, when did fascism uh, first emerge in science fiction fandom? Like, how do they even how do they even get into sci-fi? It's actually something that's been around for a while. Like normally we, we think of the fascists as these kind of outside interlopers who have shown up in fan culture in maybe the last 10 years. 
and are now ruining everything. But actually, if you go back into history, the first uh, major neo-Nazi party in the United States in the 1940s, the National Renaissance Party, was headed by a, a science fiction fan named James H. Madel. And he got his start in fan culture and recruited among fans. And he had a very explicitly white nationalist genocidal vision of the world. But part of that vision was that after the genocide, um, white people and particularly a white elite would create this new Atlantis, a kind of technological utopia um, where the super smart philosopher kings would rule over everybody else. And this, this theme of the kind of combination of speculative fiction and futurism continues through the history of white nationalism. Um, people like uh, David Duke and Willis Carto and William Luther Pierce, all these major white nationalist figures have engaged in speculations about what the future will look like. And often it sounds a lot like science fiction. They're imagining uh, genetic engineering, they're imagining space exploration, and they're imagining basically creating a Dyson sphere. Um, so there's this whole kind of undercurrent in not only fan culture, but also white nationalism that engages in fantasies about the future. It's also worth impo important to note that um, that this has been a struggle, though. Um, you know, even though there are fascist fans, there have also been plenty of, even going back to the 1930s and 1940s, socialist fans and, and anti-racist fans. Um, so even though we can clearly see that the roots of fascism go deep in fan culture, um, they, there's always been somebody there to contest them. Yeah. Um it's interesting uh, when you brought up uh, white Atlantis, because I had just heard something about that recently in relation to or in reference to uh, Jesse Ventura. Uh, people mm -hmm. might remember him from different things. Uh, professional wrestler, uh, also once the governor of Minnesota and also uh, one of the coolest characters in the movie Predator. <laughs> but uh at the same time he's a big conspiracy theorist guy i don't think he's a white supremacist but he's definitely in that conspiracy stuff and atlantis is big like that's you know the mythology of atlantis and i had heard that it had gotten like that's a very weird like they I, do they really believe in it or is it is it just some kind of like an like kind of analogy they like to use some of them clearly do like there's a a long-standing desire for a high-tech white homeland in the distant past. Um, so that could be Atlantis, that could be other kinds of lost continents. And this is something that's, that has persisted, you know, we could go back to the early 20th century, um, this idea that the Aryans or whatever they want to call themselves originated in some distant mythical past is something that it gets taken up again and again and again, I think. Uh, yeah, like a, it's a, a white Wakanda, I guess. Yeah, essentially. To, yeah. To do. Uh, man, this is I'm I'm taking us way off uh, the track of where I wanted to go. But <laughs> the, the word Aryan, this is another thing that's kind of recently been changed for me. I always just when, you know, because I always the way we're taught World War II and the, and the Nazis. Mm -hmm. When I heard Aryan, I always just thought like uh, if you, it was like people with uh, blue eyes, blonde hair. That's kind of like what they were shooting for. 
but now I'm learning that's not even what that word means. That's <laughs> is that do you have any like idea what kind of what's what's going on with that? I think that the term Aryan derives from linguistics. Um, and like a lot of terms in this realm, it, it's often pretty flexible as to who's included. Um, sometimes these definitions of whiteness are pretty capacious and include anybody who's of European descent. Sometimes this uh, Aryan elite is supposed to be a particular class within a European descended population. Um, and so because whiteness is socially constructed and um, a completely imaginary, although politically and economically enforced category, it can shift and and change based on whatever the political group is that is trying to evoke it. It was kind of something I was thinking too with the recent uh, arrest of a lot of the Jan Six guys and a lot <laughs> of the Proud Boys. And the Proud Boys are a little bit more inclusive in in their whiteness, uh, and so they have uh, people that are you know of like Latin American descent. I mean, I guess that guy that was possibly their leader or or is at least. Uh, portrayed as like maybe a president of their club uh, in a prison environment, which is where he will be. He probably would not be accepted into like an Aryan brotherhood because they're going to have a different construction of whiteness. So it is <laughs> all kind of, it all is just made up, make believe kind of where do you go? Yeah. And there are several people that I, I look at in this project who are, um, would be considered non-white and, and by, by a lot of people. And it, one of the fantasies that I, I've, I've noticed um, is uh, like, there's a guy named Jason Reza Giorgiani who has this, this fantasy that um, in the future, uh, genetic engineering will allow um, people to uh, basically re reverse the process of race mixing and create Aryan populations where that were previously non-Aryan or or mixed. And so, yeah, it is, again, like a, a very flexible kind of identity category that is used opportunistically, but is bound up in the way that these people see the world. I kind of, I want to, I want to slide back towards Dune a little bit because I know <laughs> I, I took us really off the rails. I, I have a tendency to do that. But I just wanted to ask uh, the new, the newest film, the one by, man, I'll, I'll never say his name right, uh, Dennis <laughs> Dennis Villeneuve, uh, his uh, his latest uh, adaptation of the film. Why are they so outraged about this film? Like, why don't they like it? It's if it's supposedly one of their texts. I think that the thing that a lot of members of white nationalist circles are upset about is. Um, the, the some of the more diverse casting choices. And this is a, a running theme in a lot of alt-right engagements with science fiction films, is they're not only upset with the idea just of diversity in general, but also they really don't like seeing non-white people in the future. They see the future as all white and anytime whether it be in a version of Dune or in Star Trek, we see non-white characters, they feel like they are being attacked and their vision of the future is being discredited essentially. So um, they have this strong investment in claiming a monopoly on the future and any representation that calls that into question is uh, uh, something that really bothers them. I find uh, the, the kind of mental gymnastics that these people will do because it's so 
incredibly clear if you read Dune in just the <laughs> first book, the Fremen are very obviously a Middle Eastern people. I mean, they, <laughs> it, it, religious wise, I mean, they they use the word jihad. It's, I mean, it's, it's almost, you know, it's very, very analogous to like uh, what's going on in the Middle East with like war for oil, you know, the war for spice. Or, you know, that's the interpretation that I took at face value. But. Yeah, I mean, in Dune, it's it's a very much a, a future of cultural mingling and cultural borrowing. I mean, you know, you have groups like the Zen Sunni or the Orange Catholic Bible, where it's clear that these world religions um, have been mixed together and all these different cultures are borrowing from each other's traditions and ideas and somehow they're able to gloss over that in, in a lot of these readings. I think that, this, I guess this gets back to this idea that whiteness can be a lot of different things. I mean, there are often moments in which they uh, interpret characters who are clearly coded as non-white as Aryan Ubermensch figures. Um, I think that a lot of what this is, is that fascists have always been opportunistic. They've always borrowed from different political and cultural traditions in a promiscuous way that is often a little bit cynical or more than a little bit cynical and often ignores the 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 real thing that they're looking at the actual text or the actual political ideology that they're looking at um i don't know if uh you can easily answer this question but i feel like it has to be asked since uh you know the white supremacist movement, like the the neo Nazis, all right, whatever you want to say, they're they're outraged with the new film, which, by the way, I think is fantastic, and I think it's, in my personal opinion, so much better than the original. But uh, were they happy with the David Lynch movie? Were like, did they think that was good? Um, I think that the the jury was was out on that for them. I think Richard Spencer loved the David Lynch film. And one of the things that, that is odd about listening to these people talk a lot and reading their materials is a lot of them have the kinds of fanish reactions that most people have. You know, they see, oh, the special effects in the original David Lynch Dune are not so great, but there are certain interesting things about it. And one of the things that you realize is that, that what they're trying to do through their engagement with science fiction you know, talking about Hodorowsky's Dune, for example, is show you that they are seemingly normal. Like they will try to, you know, have a very normal conversation where they just sort of chat about their their, their likes and dislikes, and then they'll throw in some fascist propaganda. So a lot of what they're doing with their engagement of science fiction is lulling you into this false sense of security for a second, sounding regular, and then becoming really hateful and normalizing that as a part of this conversation basically yeah for sure uh, actually do you mind uh just for listeners and also for me because uh, i'm not like super plugged into a lot of uh this world who is richard spencer so richard spencer is is in some ways the the george lincoln rockwell of this generation he's this kind of clean-cut fascist whose goal is to mainstream white nationalism uh, but he's also, I think, a more kind of bookish and nerdy figure than a lot of his profiles have suggested. Um, he received a master's degree from the University of Chicago, and he dropped out of a PhD program at Duke. 
Um, and he's also really obsessed with science fiction. Um, he talks about owning a lightsaber. He talks about his deep connections to science fiction films. He even ran an online class devoted to science fiction cinema this uh, winter. So science fiction has always been a part of his political project. His first big speech on the white nationalist scene uh, was delivered at the American Renaissance Conference where he not only talked about the need for a quote unquote white ethno state, but also talked about his desire to explore the stars. So this is something that he comes back to again and again. He sees um, space travel as an opportunity to exert a kind of white mastery over the world and ultimately the universe. Um, and I think that's an important thing to remember is that he get he gets into this dreamy mode and starts talking about science fiction ideas, but it's rooted in this will to racial domination. Um, he seems to be driven by this will to dominate not only people of color, but, but the people around him in his life. Um, we, for example, heard that outburst after Charlotte where he's speaking in very racist and aggressive terms about his desire to rule others. And this is a phrase he uses again and again, the white need to rule. Uh, but we also see news reports where his ex-wife accused him of horrific physical and verbal abuse. So he, he seems motivated ultimately, not only by these science fiction ideas about the future, but using them as a way to colonize and control and dominate the world, essentially. Yeah. And it's no surprise to me, you know, a person like that would be violent, you know, and the domestic violence obviously seems to me to go hand in hand with this kind of other, you know, this kind of thinking and this kind of behavior. Um, <laughs> just a, not to spend a whole lot of time on him, but just a little bit about how, like, how does he repurpose the texts of popular science fiction to create alt-right narratives for his followers? I mean, does he go in and just kind of rewrite it a little bit or is he i mean is it kind of like how people take the bible and say well this actually means this it is a process of often creative misreading but it's often a very thorough misreading he's not just talking about these for a minute or two he'll spend an hour talking about 2001 in the space odyssey or um the the film version of uh the tarkovsky version of solaris and he will often, and this is a strategy the alt-right frequently uses, um, reads it partly. So for example, you'll see a lot of science fiction texts like Dune, where the goal is in some ways to exercise a reactionary fantasy. It's to show you, you know, you're psychically invested in this uh, kind of Ubermensch figure, Superman figure, this dominating hero. And then it will have a moment of critical self-reflection where you realize that you have, in a sense, become caught up in the fantasy of the God Emperor. Or uh, we see this as well in Norman Spinrad's The Iron Dream, um, in Paul Verhoeven's version of Starship Troopers, or... Um, even like in Alan Moore's Watchmen, where it's bringing up the kind of specter of fascism in order to banish it and allow us to see the ways that it's operating in science fiction and other speculative genres. So what Spencer and the alt-right will do is they'll get us to that moment of investment in power fantasies and domination, and then leave off the moment of 
a kind of critical reflection where you realize the the problems with that and you realize the dangers of that essentially. Yeah, for sure. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe the guy that wrote Starship Troopers, he wasn't being uh, like he wasn't kidding. He would like he, mm-hmm. he 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 like he liked the fascist element of that story. And I think more, most people are familiar with the movie. And what the movie does is the movie, it kind of uh, makes like a little bit of a, like a farce of it. And mm-hmm. so when you watch the movie, you can kind of clearly see, oh, they're, they're Nazis. Oh, this is bad. This is silly. But the book, that's not how he intended the book to be. Right. Yeah. I mean, uh, Robert Heinlein's politics are often shifting from book to book and they're complicated. But yeah, there is a core, um, not only of libertarian thought, uh, but also um, a kind of, yeah, in Starship Troopers, it's definitely a militaristic power fantasy. Um, we also see in things like Farnham's Freehold, um, his really problematic racial politics. So yeah, I mean, in some ways, like the uh, fascist appropriation of uh images from Verhoeven's starship troopers that you see in certain memes are bringing back the the text full circle to the original Heinlein yeah uh interesting fact that I just happened to know about uh it's, it's Richard Highland right that's uh Robert Highland Robert, Robert Highland uh he is one of the very first people to try to create a libertarian boat country uh for people that aren't unfamiliar with that, it's like libertarians that don't want to live under the law of, you know, a sovereign nation. And this something I've, I think they've tried several times it always fails because it's, it's it's an insane idea. That's where you go and you take a bunch of boats and kind of strap them together out in the ocean and then say you're a country. <laughs> and I think yeah, he's I mean, the, the originator of that. It's I mean, the idea of exit and secession is something that's pervasive on the far right. Um, And this is something they disagree about. There are certain fascists who want an imperial power that will dominate everybody. And there are other fascists who want to secede, remove themselves from uh, the dominant society or dominant culture that they see as oppressing them, the system or whatever. Um, And yeah, I mean, Heinlein's image of the... uh, the, the lunar colony in the moon is a harsh mistress that secedes from the earthly uh, statist government is something that's appealing to people like Nick Land, for example, who is um, calls himself a neo-reactionary. So this idea of escaping from either the, the state or multiculturalism or whatever it is that they are railing against by withdrawing themselves and creating a new society in space or under the ocean or whatever is a a persistent fantasy among the far right. It's so bizarre to me. Like when you say things like this guy calls himself a neo-reactionary, like he (laughs) willingly calls himself that it's not like he's been labeled that way. It's almost like saying, like I am a dickhead or you know like I am a psycho and being proud of that uh statement I don't <laughs> I don't know yeah I mean there's definitely an antisocial dimension to this and a kind of edge lord dimension to this and 
the other thing too is that you don't want to take some of these self descriptions too seriously because there a lot of these people are moving around in their politics or their political descriptions so much but what stays the same is a commitment to uh white supremacy and other forms of elitism and domination essentially so yeah there is there are all these there's a there's a whole um, a whole kind of bestiary of self-described, you know, groups that have all these different little niche names. And it's yeah. hard to tell, like, even how many of them are in a particular group. But but ultimately, they're just they're racists, they're fascists, they, they come down to that. Yeah, it, exactly how you put it, like yeah, an entire bestiary of titles and names and niches. But what is the point? Like, what's the difference between calling yourself a neo-reactionary or a neo-nazi or an alt-right extremist or uh, in some instances a republican i mean you know like it's you're, you're uh you're kind of all getting at the same the same point or at least at least the same baseline of ideals yeah I, some of it is a project of euphemization they they want to make their ideas more acceptable some of it is i mean these people a lot of them them hate each other like they're, they're constantly in fighting and so some of it is the narcissism of small differences and a desire to um be the leader uh so a lot of it is as in a lot of online uh political spaces is just sort of people fighting with each other and inventing new labels to distinguish themselves from the other fascists that they disagree with on some minor point yeah man that i love that term uh the the narcissism of small differences. I learned that probably about a year ago. And I was like, this is so dead on. So that, so, you know, I, I, I fall on the left. That's where I'm at, you know, but not, I'm not left enough for some people or I'm too left for some people or whatever. Uh, one thing that kind of stuck, I, I had the founder of the Lincoln project on this podcast and I had some, some goofy goons, you know, coming at me and saying like that, it, it, I honestly, I don't even really know what they were saying. I'm not even sure they, they knew what they were saying other than, you know, saying that I'm kind of like collaborating with uh, fascists. And it's like, you know, and this is, I thought, I think I said something too along the lines of like, you know, well, the enemy of an enemy is my friend. And then very quickly, I decided that these were all people I should just block on, <laughs> on Twitter. And um, yeah, I guess I assume that that must be happening as well on the right. It's just, you know, you're not you're not right enough you're too right it's i mean yeah i mean many people on the far right think for example that richard spencer is not radical enough in his racism and his fascism and so we see a kind of mirror world where some of those conversations are um happening on the far right um and it is but i also think that in some ways they are more aggressively self-destructive um, because it's a movement that draws so many antisocial personalities who have serious problems getting even getting along with others and yeah. you have a, a deep kind of hatred and aggression that seems to come out in even in their arguments with people who are functionally identical to their viewpoints so uh, i mean there are a number of reasons why the alt-right imploded uh, and we you know we could talk about those but one of them is that they 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 all hate each other <laughs> like all yeah. the major figures <laughs> fell apart quickly and can't really coordinate with each other because each one 
it wants to be the, their own little dictator and control the others, it seems like. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, not to harp on it, but I, that's something I would love to see. Uh, maybe people try to tr a little bit harder on, you know, the the left side of politics to try and be a little more cooperative because I've, you know, I've known a lot of people that are just, they're kind of like just uh, like venomous, you know, they're just kind of spewing bile and maybe their heart's in the right place, you know, and, and I'm not like, I'm over here. I'm like, Hey, we should have a uh, universal health healthcare. We should uh, house people that are unhoused and uh, we should protect, you know, animals and rivers and mountains. And people are like, you know, you're a, you know, they'll say very insulting things to me. And half the time, I don't even know what they're calling me because they're very creative terms for people like me. So <laughs> uh, I'd love to see more cooperation in the future. Yeah. I mean, I think that a lot of, the infighting that you see on the left comes from moments in which people feel demoralized and disengaged and aren't connecting to real world struggles. And I think that's the moment where people start attacking others who have very similar viewpoints to their own and obsessing. I mean, obviously there, there are, there are good reasons to have, you know, a clear principles and clear beliefs and clear commitments. Um, but also you, you want to be able to work together with others to, to further your cause. Yeah. And, and I mean, like, and I can see that from my own viewpoint to people like uh, there are uh, democratic senators and Congress people who I really don't like the fact that they accept let's, okay, we'll call it donations, but we could also call it something meaner we could say bribes mm -hmm. from certain corporations like you know oil companies and stuff like this and i'm like you know this is really it's this is uh unethical but at the same time i'm not saying like hey let's get rid of all of them because all that does is open more room for more like psychotic right-wing extremists to take over even more of the government i i feel like this makes just basic common sense but it, I, to a lot of people it does not so mm -hmm. i bet that the thing is I'm not, I, you know, I don't pass the purity test, I believe is the term for it. <laughs> <laughs> um, but if you don't mind, man, let's, let's return to my dear book, Dune, that I love so much and what has been done. Uh, <laughs> um, so actually, would you help me with this, this pronunciation? I mean, obviously this is, <laughs> this is how people might, you know, it's, it, you either say how you heard it in the movie or how you, in your mind from reading the books. Do, do you pronounce it uh, Quitsat Haderach? That's what I say. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah. So the, the alt-right interpretation of Paul Atreides becoming the Quitsat Haderach uh, through Benny Gesserit uh, influence is an, ana an analogy for like Nazi eugenics in a way. <laughs> uh, what does the alt-right think about like say transhumanism and genetic engineering? <laughs> Yeah, the alt right is is very much drawn to the eugenic subtext that we see in Dune, um, and I think Dune is in, in some ways picking up a long history of eugenic idea, eugenics ideas in science fiction. Um, you know, there was even a group of science fiction fans uh, led by this guy uh, Claude Degler who believed that he would create his own fan utopia. And fans would breed together to create a master race. So it's something that's 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 been around for a while in science fiction. And, and um, but we see in Dune a, a sense in which 
there are obvious problems in this breeding program. And ultimately, they, they produce this sort of superhuman the moment it doesn't work, the moment somebody does something that doesn't fit with the breeding program. Um, but I think that more broadly, um, the alt-right is interested in these projects of transhumanism and genetic engineering um, because they believe in biological determinism and they believe that we're only going to uh, create, uh, and I guess they believe only white people are going to create a better society uh, by creating better humans or post-humans. But there are disagreements. There are people like Alexander Dugan and Alex Jones who are worried that the globalist elite are going to create animal-human hybrids or cyborgs and other kinds of transhumans uh, who are soulless and serve, serve the uh, liberal system. And there are others, though, on, on the far right, who imagine overcoming uh, the limitations of Homo sapiens and becoming these sort of superhuman beings. But even though they often fantasize about changing their DNA and changing fundamental aspects of humanity, they, they assert that race will continue. So I found one scientific racist that was imagining that in the future, people could radically modify their bodies so that there would be centaurs and satyrs. But he insisted that there would be white centaurs and black centaurs and whiteness would persist. So there's always this incoherence or contradiction in the far right's thought where they're like embracing this radical biological genetic change and then resisting the idea that whiteness wouldn't change too. They think that yeah. whiteness is eternal and will remain forever, which is obviously uh, a completely incoherent point. That's definitely where we get the word extreme because it's like you're talking about becoming a chimera, but you're also white. And you're, you're talking about splicing your genes with a completely different species, and yet you remain a white human. I'm, like you said, that's incoherent. Yeah, I mean, it speaks to the the fact that all of this is not rooted in any kind of rational thought. It's a, a commitment to a fantasy, a myth that they have to square with their other beliefs somehow. And that's one of the reasons why we often see fascists trying to pull together contradictory notions and but gluing them together with whiteness. So they'll say, oh, I'm I'm pulling from the left and the right. But what again, the thing that remains the same is a commitment to uh, white supremacy, essentially. I get so confused too when you, when you were talking about Alex Jones, one of my favorite guys. Uh, <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just kidding, but you know, what does he think liberalism is? You know, when he's like, does he think that like people that want social spending and uh, social security and a you know safety net and like that they also want an army of uh, half human hybrid soulless <laughs> monsters to stop the like. Because who I don't I don't understand the the narrative that he's creating there. Like, is, I, I haven't. Mean... <laughs> yeah, I mean I haven't spent a lot of time, luckily, with Alex Jones. But I think that the idea of liberalism more broadly on the far right involves, I mean, a few things. One is they they see liberalism as a homogenization. Um, I mean, Spencer often talks about liberalism, or at least in one episode, talks about liberalism as the Borg, assimilating everybody to this sort of mixed identity. They really have a, a hatred of universalism and a sense of uh, a global community. And that's part of what they see as liberalism. 
Um, but they also see liberalism as the last man in uh, Nietzsche or um, other kinds of thinkers who, who talk about this. They see liberalism as a consumerist identity where your goal is uh, economic calculation and hedonistic satisfaction with no higher ideals. And so they believe that liberalism is going to create a world where people are almost subhuman, where they don't believe in anything greater than instant gratification. And they don't believe in taking real risks or um, fighting for some higher uh, goal beyond themselves. And so that's part of, in some ways, why they're drawn to something like Dune, which is all about this, not only a superhuman figure, but one who's willing to take giant risks and to risk destroying the, the, the spice trade and risk destroying this entire economic system because they're yearning for a world of um, aristocrats who are going to fight duels to the death. Um, obviously, all of this is nonsense because if you could imagine, I, I can't imagine a group that is more pampered and secure and consumerist than anime Nazis on the internet who yeah. have, they're not, these are not the shell-shocked veterans of the First World War who are trying to recreate the um, sublime experience of battle. These are people who are watching science fiction films and imagining themselves in medieval fa fantasy fights or whatever. Yeah, and they're protected by cops. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And these are the people that are, that are monarchists. And it's like, mm -hmm. where do you think you would fall in society if we return to monarchy? You would be at at best uh, a serf, and mm -hmm. possibly something far worse. But you know, I, <laughs> um, I was going to ask too. Like, so we talked about that. You know, this this future, them wanting to see an all white future. You actually wrote about that in your article too. The this they have this belief that only white men have the ability to. Uh, envision a future because they're the only ones that can, uh, for whatever reason, can delay gratification and all this horseshit. Um, mm -hmm. But what does the alt right think about um, multicultural representations of the future, such as you know, obviously Star Trek, the you know mm -hmm. the biggest science fiction franchise of all time? The alt right really hates Star Trek. They come firmly down on the side of Star Wars. Um, often they'll identify with the Sith, for example. Um, and Star Trek is, for them, a really uh, the, the sort of prime example of the thing that they hate. Um, they see it as egalitarian, as Marxist, um, as uh, racially liberal, as Jewish. And they often rail against the Star Trek vision of the future um, for a number of reasons. I mean, one is that with characters like Uhura and Sulu, um, the original series presented a view of the future that wasn't all white, and that was really threatening to them. Um, and they also singled out uh, Nichelle Nichols, uh, who played Uhura, as one of their prime enemies, because they, they saw her as part of the effort to make NASA more diverse. And so as somebody who is standing in the way of the all white, all, all white future of space flight too. Um, and so whenever they talk about Star Wars, they really hate the idea that it shows people working together from different races and different cultures. Um, the only part about Star Wars that they do like 
uh, or at least that Richard Spencer likes, is the figure of of Khan, the eugenics Superman who shows up in the not only in the original series but also in the second Star War or Star Trek film. I mean, um, as a sort of aristocratic anti egalitarian figure who is antithetical to everything that Star Trek represents. And again, this is part of their reading method. It's they find a representation of fascism that's supposed to be bad, and they flip it around and endorse it as uh, as what they believe in, essentially. Yeah. I feel like you already kind of touched on this a little bit, but I feel like we're, we've kind of gotten back into the this little area. And that's the whole like fascist ideologues, like what they believe about shaping the future. But <laughs> what is this obsession with space flight, uh, specifically returning to the moon, or in the case of Elon Musk, going to Mars. What is what is that all about? Why are they so obsessed with it? This has been a long-standing obsession that they have, and I think a lot of it is that the fact that we haven't been back to the moon for fifty years becomes their uh, main example of what they see as decadence and decline. You know, we, the United States used to explore the stars and now we're no longer doing that. So it allows them to put forth this narrative of degeneration and decay and to suggest that, as a lot of fascists often do, that they are going to, through violence, through authoritarianism, bring back a kind of national renewal. Um, they have a number of different explanations of why NASA has gone in decline. Um, some suggest that it's too diverse now, um, which is obviously false. Um, others will suggest that the, that we no longer have the IQ enough to go back into space. Um, but what one alt-right thinker, Greg Johnson, suggests is that there is a contradiction between liberal democracy and space exploration, because space exploration requires a strong dictator who's willing to impose austerities on people uh, and deny their kind of short-term instant gratification in order to carry out this long-term project of exploring space. And they, they're obsessed with this idea of space exploration as well because they see it as a new frontier. I mean, this is a, all a big settler colonial fantasy, um, one that's been with science fiction for a while, the idea of space as a place where white men can prove themselves and overcome obstacles and dominate and expand and they believe that this expansion is central to the white identity. Um, Spencer says that the white identity is dying while exploring the moons of Jupiter. And they also see it not only as a kind of self-expression of whiteness, but as the opportunity to colonize and create this empire uh, out of a, a space where there are no, no non-white people. They believe that space travel will allow for a return to the frontier that doesn't risk race mixing, essentially. And so space travel is something that's really central now to a lot of the alt-right's political project. Not to give them too much credit uh, for uh, the ability to read history in, you know, correctly at all. But is this, uh, are they kind of drawing this from the era of uh, white expansion into, into the, in, into North America? So, uh, is that kind of like where they're like, oh, well, that was our heyday was when we had the slave trade and this is when we were uh, causing this, the genocide of the Native Americans. This is what we're trying to achieve. And I guess, like you said, in space travel and space colonization, there's, you know, the the possibility that there's aliens, but 
Uh, like you said, there's no chance of race mixing because there are no, <laughs> there's nobody out out there. Uh, is that kind of like that's how that's this this perfect fantasy of taking this uh, era of history when when the when whites really did have this uh, long era of genocide and then mixing that with a future that has no chance of us being ch- or no chance of humans being changed. <laughs> Right, exactly. They often will hold up uh, colonizers as these grand heroes, um, and they they will present them as the the pinnacle of the Aryan race. And yeah, as you point out, like the the this fantasy often involves erasing the possibility of ever encountering anyone different in space. Basically, they they are not interested in science fiction as it's often understood, as an encounter with otherness, as uh, seeing a world or seeing people that are different from yourself or imagining a radically different world, they really do just want to um, replicate white supremacy, settler colonialism, imperial domination in the stars, unchanged, um, which, again, is an impossible fantasy um, that, that I mean, we can't imagine that level of technological change and still simply repeating the kinds of social forms that we see on on Earth. Um, And I should say that, again, this is also a really bad reading of the history of NASA as well. As as many people undoubtedly know, there were plenty of Black women mathematicians involved in NASA um, leading up to the uh, the moon landing. Um, So often this is a, a... vision of history that erases the accomplishments of people of color and uh, overemphasizes and mythicizes um, imagined white accomplishments. Yeah, and I, I can totally see now when you were saying why they uh, they dislike Star Trek, but they love Star Wars, and especially <laughs> the, the original trilogy, because what do you have there? You have uh, the Empire, which is all white guys. You've got the rebels, which are all white guys, you can pick either side, and then everyone else is a Muppet, essentially. You know, the aliens are Muppets, so they're not they aren't truly aren't human. And so I can see whether you know they can get into that fantasy world and, and really, really dig in. Yeah, I mean they do they when they think about Star Wars, it is very much allowing them to identify with both sides. I mean, David Higgins. Uh, wrote a book called Reverse Colonization, looking at the ways the alt-right often thinks of itself as dominated and colonized by some other. So the Rebel Alliance provides a perfect example of allowing them to have that fantasy. And then the Sith and the Empire are figures for, um, they're clearly coded as fascists. They have, you know, the uniforms. um, And they're also figures for imposing a, a kind of violent order in the name of technological progress that is is for people like Richard Spencer very appealing. So it allows them to um, imagine themselves as, as, oh, they're poor victimized figures, but they also clearly enjoy this, the fantasy of um, dominating and destroying other people with the Death Star. As much as I would love to just continue to pick on Star Wars, <laughs> I, I am curious, what are some of the other like, you know, biggest hits of uh, of science fiction uh, films or uh, novels that these people like they they really have brought into the fold and they use for recruitment and they they've you know created their own interpretations of. 
I think a lot of them are really interested in in Blade Runner um, because no, you have no, not Blade. Yeah, I was. <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I just want to. I don't want to interrupt you, but I was going to say earlier on in the podcast, I was, I was when we were talking about you uh, much earlier sci-fi. I was going to say I'm sure that Philip K. Dick is safe from these people because he's I he's so outwardly anti. Yeah. But fuck it. I guess okay. I mean, they don't—they don't really read the novels, uh, yeah. Philip K. Dick. They're interested in the 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 depiction of the the posthuman replicants as again these sort of Ubermensch, Superman figures who are being uh, dominated and controlled by a multicultural future. Um, let's see what else. I mean, Warhammer uh, is another thing. They're really interested in this this miniature fantasy and science fiction war game. Oh, yeah. Can, is, you, can you, I, I read about that in your article and mm-hmm. I have heard of this, but can, uh, I know this is a big deal. What, can you explain to me like really kind of what Warhammer is? Cause I have no idea. It's this miniature war game. You know, you have these little figurines and you fight battles with them. Um, and it's actually a, a British game produced by Games Workshop. And it's in some ways a parody, uh, particularly the early iterations of it, were in the same vein as something like Judge Dredd, where you have this larger than life, over the top authoritarian government that is often the main player of the game, um, the, the Imperium. And it's ruled over by a god emperor, so it's it's in some ways uh, riffing on Dune as well. Um, but as a, as Alright often does, they ignore the satirical and parodic elements of it. They ignore the fact that we're not supposed to root for these space marines. Again, here's Heinlein coming back in. We're not necessarily supposed to root for the dictatorship that's destroying everybody. That it's a world where everybody is awful, and. Um, everybody's constantly at war and it's a dystopia um and so they a lot of people on the alt-right engage in this often in a very superficial way um they're a very small part of the fan base and a lot of them don't even necessarily actually play they just use it for memes so there were a lot of god emperor trump uh, memes a while back and i should note too that as with science fiction culture there's always uh, an anti-fascist contingent that's fighting back against this right-wing element. And a lot of people who play Warhammer 40k are really upset with uh, uh, right-wing players showing up with fascist memorabilia or coming onto online spaces and insisting um, that the Imperium of Man, that this dictatorship is good and what we should implement. And it's been really influential among uh, some uh, people like, like uh, Matthew Heimbach as a kind of vision of the future, but it but that reading, as always, simplifies a lot. I think of what's going on in that game. So, so this is a kind of a, a fantasy role play game. Um, would you say that it's? I'm like I've said, I've never actually seen the game, but it sounds in a way maybe it's like a little bit like uh, Dungeons and Dragons, where you do you get that immersed into it, or is it not nearly that immersive? The universe is, has a bunch of different games. So some of them are just fighting war games where you're just rolling dice and you know the you you kill the alien or they kill you. And then some parts of the games are you know there's there is a role playing game associated with the setting as well, and it is more immersive in that respect. And you know there are novels, there are video games. Okay. It's a whole um, 
a distributed sort of universe. Uh, and and some people are only reading the books. Some people are only playing the, the miniature games. And so um, it can be pretty immersive in, in some respects. Okay. So I was thinking like the only board game I've ever played that sounds like this is Risk. Uh, mm -hmm. I don't think, I mean, well, I, I could be wrong, but I don't think that Risk has any lore to it. It's just like you just play and, and try to win. I... Yeah, it's definitely in that same kind of field of games. Yeah, Risk, um, we could think of it as uh, maybe an heir to the kind of military games, you know, where you play as one side of World War II or whatever. Um, and so, so, yeah, it's it's different than some board games in that there is a deep lore and people get really, you know, I, there are two hour long videos explaining one piece of technology or one um, imaginary battle in this universe. So some people are, get super invested in it. And I should say too, that there is also through that investment is that's one of the ways that people will often try to shut other people out. Um, some people are, are so invested in canon that they can't imagine the universe adding different kinds of groups and different kinds of people to the mix of this universe. Um, and so uh, in some ways, like a, a commitment to lore as set in stone, as ahistorical and as never changing becomes part of the way that some people on the far right try to make sure that there are no women space Marines, for example. Yeah. I'm going to go ahead and uh, on, on a limb here and say, uh, I bet they don't like altered carbon because the concept there is that you are literally just the like the stack that's kept in your cerebral cortex. And when you're killed, you can be re-sleeved into any kind of body, which means your <laughs> the amount of melanin in your skin is completely irrelevant to your identity. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I, I have not seen them engage with that, but you know, the implications of science fiction are often that your identity is malleable, who you are and who your what your culture is, is going to change when the aliens show up or when we invent a way to port you into a machine or whatever. And I think a lot of the alt-right refuses to think through the fact that science fiction is an inherently historicist genre that is designed to show you that whatever you are right now, whatever you think the world is right now, is going to change and your prejudices and your assumptions will have to go by the wayside, I think. Yeah. Um, let's take a super deep dive one more time. Uh, th this is uh, with Dune. It also has to do with uh, Richard Spencer and some of the people that have done some of the, the readings with him and so on and so forth. Uh, this is another name that I'm going to absolutely butcher. You, you might have to correct me. <laughs> Uh, okay. Uh, this is, this is, uh, I, I learned this from your article that, uh, Richard Spencer had interviewed this guy and this is, this is where they compare a lot of what Dune to this more, more awful, uh, man's book. Who is, okay. Let's Guillaume. That's not Guillaume Fay. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's Guillaume Fay, but again, I'm okay. really bad at pronouncing. Right. I read a lot and yeah. so I don't listen as much sometimes. I think we're in the um, same, same world of like, uh, I read a lot of things and then I have no idea how to say them out loud when it's time to say it. So, but uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the question is uh, who is uh, Guillaume Fai and uh, why does the alt-right compare his book? And this is, this is quite a, quite a title of a book. <laughs> uh, Archaeofuturism, 
European visions of the post-catastrophic age. <laughs> yeah, he he's been pretty influential for people like Richard Spencer. Um, he is or was a, a major member of the French New Right, which was this group of essentially racists and fascist intellectuals in Europe who saw themselves as promoting a kind of ethno-pluralism. They, as the fascists often do, they tried to present themselves not as Nazis, uh, but as people who are preserving ethnic and racial difference and cultural difference in the face of globalization and homogenization. But Phi went out even further than a lot of the members of this movement in endorsing a violent and Islamophobic nativism. Um, and so he kind of spun off from them. And um, part of the product of that journey into extremism was imagining this all white um, nation or empire, the Euro-Siberian Federation, where Russia and Europe would meld together and create this science fictional utopia where half the population not even half, um, a small part of the population would be um, this sort of Faustian elite. Like some people, the the smartest people and the most virtuous people would get to be a part of technological modernity and experience rapid technological change. And then everybody else would be peasants and would live in a kind of circular temporality of seasons and rituals and preserve the supposed ancient European values and so that the technological elite could go to their little villages and reconnect to tradition. Obviously, all this is incoherent, like this idea of like an ancient paganism that persists despite the fact that you have people genetically engineering each other and riding around on super fast bullet trains. Um, and obviously, this is also based on a fantasy in which all non-white people have been exterminated from um, Europe and uh, Russia. And so this appealed, though, to the alt-right because they try to mesh these incommensurate visions of the future together. They they think that the future is going to be the past, that there's a kind of return to archaic values using high-tech, ultra-modern methods. And they're always trying to square this circle in these fantasies. So Phi is useful for that and they often would apply his ideas to dune which is a kind of world where it seems futile uh, and yet at the same time you can warp through space using spice or you know using uh, an ornithopter to fly around um so they, they're really interested in this idea of mixing old and new um and trying to to build something out of those two different visions of the world Man, he sounds like a, a real piece of shit. <laughs> yeah, he's pretty awful. And it's a pretty gross book just all around. Um, I would not recommend reading <laughs> it. Uh, I'm not going to put that on my uh, reading list this year. No. <laughs> um, so uh, so this is kind of a off-the-cuff question, and I know it's extremely difficult to answer, but I have to just throw it out there anyway. Do you think there are, like, there are any ways like for people like me or just you know people that – that enjoy uh, Dune for what it is or, mm -hmm. for, or for what Frank Herbert meant for it to be, or even things like such a star Wars, you know, as flawed as it might be sometimes to be able to like kind of maybe protect it from this 
this uh, co-opting by the by the alt right. I think it's important not to cede these spaces to the fascists. I think that most science fiction fans are nothing like this, and I think that a lot of these creators who are being co-opted by fascists would. Um, very much disagree with the way that they're being treated. I mean, Frank Herbert intended Dune to be a rejection of the fascist Superman myth. And so I think it's important to make sure that uh, there's a clear boundary and the fascists are on the other side of that boundary, not to invite them into these spaces, um, not to promote them, obviously. And also, I think it's important to engage with and promote the work of um, uh, scholars of color and fans of color who are showing the ways that although science fiction and other fan cultures have often been racially exclusive and exclusionary in a lot of other ways, um, that there have always been marginalized people involved in making and reading and enjoying science fiction and other fan cultures. So I think that the, the best thing that we can do is make sure that we're, we are inclusive and that um, we don't allow the alt-right to speak on behalf of science fiction and, and fantasy and other speculative genres. We're getting dangerously close to the lightning round. <laughs> I'm going to tell you how the lightning round works. This is the part where I ask you questions super fast and you have to try and answer them as fast as you can. And that's that's it. Uh, don't try don't to think know. about it. Just gut reaction. <laughs> you can always say pass. Um, let me see if I can get it here. Okay. Uh, okay. I found it. Are you ready to, ready to do it? <laughs> as ready as I'm going to be. <laughs> it's kind of like it's kind of like the game portion of the podcast. So I have a feeling you're going to win. Okay. <laughs> all right. Uh, this is all Dune related. I just, I took it oh, all no. straight, from, <laughs> straight from Dune. Uh, the Gum Jabbar also known as the high-handed enemy, was a handheld needle-tipped with metacyanide poison. When driven into a victim, it brought almost instantaneous death. So in the in the book, Dune, uh, Paul Atreides is given a test by a Bene Gesserit, uh, like, high mother, I forgot what she's called, but, you know, priestess. And the point is, uh, it creates the feeling of burning. It feels like your hand's on fire. If he was to remove his hand from the box, the needle would uh, stab him with the cyanide and he would die. If he kept his hand in the box, he passed the test. That's the whole, that's it. That's all you need to know about that. The question here, that's those for the listeners. I know you already knew that. Um, the question here, is there any figure on the alt-right that could possibly, that could possibly pass the gum Jabbar test? Or are all these guys just too soft these days? Yeah, I don't, I don't think so. I mean, they, they are, they all are pretty soft and I think they're all pretty impulsive. I mean, they, they fantasize about their ability to think in long-term uh, planning terms, but they, I think they all would react pretty quickly. <laughs> yeah. That's what, that they're reactionaries. <laughs> yeah. 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 All right. You're here first. There is no one on the alt-right that can pass the, the Gom Jabbar. <laughs> this is a, a personal question just for, for you. Uh, given, given the choice in the future uh, that is envisioned by Frank Herbert, would you rather be a Mintat or a Navigator? I think I think Mintat. I mean, the, the Navigators, don't they turn into like fish people? That, that doesn't sound fun. I mean, the idea of being able to do super fast computations. I'm, I'm bad at math, so it'd be nice to have that superpower. 
All right, it's that it is. I, I would pick the same, but just for anybody listening that if you haven't read the book, uh, yes, you would become much like a dolphin if you became a navigator, <laughs> but you could also uh, travel through like space time. So it does have <laughs> its own uh, benefits. But yeah, if you're a Mintat, you're basically a human computer. <laughs> All right. Uh, here's a, here's a, a, I'm putting you on the spot, man. Oh, no. Can't, and I'm not sure I could do it either. Uh, can you recite the Bini Jesuit uh, fear prayer off the top of your head right now? No, I can't. All I know, I mean, you know, fear is a mind killer. It's about where I trail off. So <laughs> um, I'm, I'm going to try and do it. Do you mind if I try? Go for uh, it. <laughs> fear is the mind killer. I will not fear. It is the little death. Uh, I will let it pass through me. And when it is gone, Nothing will be left. Only I will remain. That's not. That's not correct. That's 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 close though. It's further than I got. <laughs> well, let's let's hold on. We're this is we're gonna get the real one. I gotta do it. Benny Jesuit prayer. Fear is the mind killer. <laughs> oh, it's called the litany against fear. Fear is the mind killer. I will face my fear. I will let it pass through me. When the fear has gone, there shall be nothing left. Only I will remain. That was close enough. <laughs> All right. Uh, now this is, uh, purely just opinion, uh, on a scale from one to 10, how satisfied were you with them casting, uh, Jason Momoa as Duncan Idaho? I'd say eight. Wow. You really, you gave Jason Momoa an eight on that. He was not my, my personal first choice. Oh, <laughs> I mean, he's, he's okay. He's like, he's grown on me. <laughs> I loved him in game of Thrones and stuff. Like when he first came out on the scene, but then I hated Aquaman so much that I was like, oh, oh okay. So yeah, that kind of yeah. sunk him for me. <laughs> I still um, haven't seen Aquaman, so. <laughs> don't. Save yourself the the, the trouble. <laughs> All right. Okay. Same question. And this is for Timothy Chalamet as uh, Paul Atreides. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I, I don't like him. I have to Whoa, say, I mean, maybe, maybe I should not come out as, as this strongly, but there's something about him that I did not love. I, I prefer the, the original, um, oh shoot, what's his name? Um, in the David Lynch version. Was it Sting? No, no, it's- well, it oh, Sting's a Harkonnen or something, I think. Yeah, in Dune, it's the it's the guy It's the guy from Twin Peaks. Oh, it's Peak. the guy from, yeah, the guy from Twin Peaks. Kyle Peak. McLaughlin. I yeah. love Kyle McLaughlin, so yeah. <laughs> I think I think they should have just CGI'd Kyle McLaughlin back into a young, young person again, and he can play it again. They could have done, oh, like, like they did with that movie, with that Martin Scorsese movie? Yeah, that, that, yeah. So I'll give him a, I'll give him a four. <laughs> four is decent. You know, I feel like uh, you and I are kind of like on opposites on that. <laughs> well no that's i'm not i don't dislike jason momoa as that but I, I would say jason momoa for me is like a six or mm -hmm. maybe a seven and i think T timothy chalamet really grew on me but mm -hmm. uh most of that was from uh don't look up i don't know if you saw that oh yeah 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 yeah, yeah. I, I thought in don't look up he really kind of like that was the first time i saw him in something and i was like oh this guy's this guy's good mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. um <laughs> enough <laughs> and this has been timothy chalamet talk with yeah <laughs> uh, i have one more question to ask you jordan before before you leave us and it is this uh people that want to read more you know learn more about what we're talking about uh where can people find your books your articles uh and just anything you'd like to share yeah so uh you know i have an active twitter account and then for this stuff that i talked about today 
uh, look for the forthcoming book from the University of Minnesota Press's Forerunner series. Um, it's going to be called Speculative Whiteness, Race, uh, Science Fiction, and the Alt-Right. Awesome. Uh, Jordan, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Yeah, thanks for having me. This was really fun.